If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 3. I had the opportunity to speak last night at the Bible study in the Rodriguez's home, and I'm thankful for that, that I got to speak, and I'm more thankful for what the Lord did and said. I believe he was there and he ministered, and there are some things that we talked about last night that are still stirring in my spirit, and I just want to be able to convey what I believe the Lord's put on my heart tonight that will will help us for this time. So Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to start in verse 5. In this, in this setting, as we know, we've been reading and talking quite a bit about Genesis here lately. And in this setting, this is shortly after the creation and with Adam and Eve in the garden after they had been given the commandment not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in chapter 3 here, it picks up with the conversation that the serpent is going to have with Eve. I'm just going to say that one more time. The conversation that the serpent is going to have with Eve. You know, if you went out on the street and just started telling people you believe in talking snakes, they'd look at you like you're kind of crazy. If I can be real with you for a second. But we can't. We can't, we have to be careful not to let the spirit of this age get into our spirit in such a way that it starts to cause doubt or unbelief. Um, If you believe the Bible, then you believe that a serpent talked to a woman. If you believe the Bible, you believe that a serpent talked to a woman. Now, we know, and and as it's been said uh, here even lately, Genesis 1-1, it starts with in the beginning. And what that is talking about is in the beginning of time as we know it and as we relate to it. Before the beginning, before the beginning, our beginning, God was in heaven. With his angels, the host of angels. God, the supreme being, the one true God, and angels were all that existed. There weren't birds. There weren't serpents. There weren't shoes. There weren't chairs. It was God and angels, okay? That's all that existed. The one true God and his angels. One of his angels decided, I want to be like God. I want to exalt my throne. I want to be a God. That's terminology that we get insight to through the word of God. But this is what was happening before our time. There was one God. There was his angels. One of those angels decided, I want to become like him. Actually says, I want to exalt my throne above his. He's still an angel. Just uh, Just because he wanted to do that does not mean he got to be a God. Okay? Does that mean now that, now that we have God and his angels and one angel out of order, we have more than one God? Of course not. Okay? So that's all that there was, God and his angels. And this one angel, Lucifer, who, because of his actions, his thoughts, his pride, his iniquity, he's kicked out of heaven. With a third of the angels that follow him. 
Now, just because there's a third of the angels that follow him, does that mean we have more than one God? Of course not. We've got one God. We've got two-thirds good angels. We've got one-third bad angels, right? That's still the only beings in existence. Then, after Lucifer and that one-third are kicked out of heaven, somewhere in the process of that, God decides to begin our time. And that's why Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, the beginning of our time, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. This is that face of the deep, that earth that was without form and void, is the realm where Lucifer and his angels were kicked out to, if that makes sense. Where they were sent to, out of heaven, into this realm where God created a heaven and an earth. So now that we have God, Lucifer, a heaven and an earth, do we have more than one God? No. That's still all of the beings that are in existence. Now God creates with his word, with his power, all the living inhabitants of this earth. The animals, the plants, the humans, through his power. Now do we have more than one God? Of course not. Still God, still his creation, and those angels, those spirit beings. It's just two people. And spirit beings and animals, okay? I want you to get that because when there's just those two people and the instructions that follow for them, the serpent, who we know, did what he did because he was possessed by the spirit of the devil. Decides, I'm going to speak to this woman. I'm going to, I'm going to take the opportunity that I have through the talents, abilities, skills, whatever it is that I can do, my strength. I'm going to possess this body of a serpent, use its capabilities to communicate with this human being. Watch what he says now that we know that. 3-5. This is the serpent speaking. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. This is the serpent introducing a concept. To one of the only two human beings on earth. Now in the Old Testament it's written in the Hebrew language. And the Hebrew word Elohim is used twice here. The first time the serpent uses it he's referencing the one true God. For God, the one true God knows if you do This thing, if you eat of this fruit, you will become as Elohims. Little Elohims. Gods. You will become like gods. This is a foreign concept to the second human being to ever walk the earth. Because up until this point, remember it was outside of our beginning of time... God and his angels, and then inside our time, God and his creation and the angels. That's the only new dynamic here. But this, this evil spirit being decides, I'm going to mess with the concept of this person by introducing to them the idea that there could be more than one God. 
more than one Elohim. Before that, just one. After that, just one. Oh, there's only one. Okay, but this is a lie, a deception of the devil to come into the mind of a human being and say, not only can you be like God, but there are multiple gods. See, we talked about this some last night. The way that we fall or, or get deceived oftentimes is not just deciding to jump out of the boat into a crazy unknown ocean. No, we start by entertaining thoughts. Or I think the word that I used last night was considering, giving consideration to a thought. So as soon as the devil comes to Eve and says, if you do this, you're going to be like gods. Eve should have said, there's only one God. There, there, I can't be like God. I'm a human being. There's that one, and then there's me and my husband, and then there's these animals and plants, and that's the creation. And there's this crazy talking snake. That's all that I know that there is. But because of deception and this idea of a foreign concept introduced into the mind of a human that is how we know the deceiver works. He gets you thinking about things, whether true or not. He gets you thinking about things. After you have... I, I, so, I, I started with that example of jumping out of the boat into the water, if you don't know what the water is. So... If I told you that at the bottom of the ocean, instead of sand, it's actually Skittles. Because I know Skittles are your favorite candy. Now, what you should do with, your, with the limited knowledge that you have is a few things. First of all, you should dismiss this because it's crazy. It's unheard of. It's foreign. But you should also consider the fact that that is, a, that is an element, that is a dimension, that's a dynamic where you don't belong. You can't live under the water. You know, at least know that much. That's why you're in a boat. Okay? But you start to consider and contemplate if there really was Skittles at the bottom of the ocean, would they taste like the kind of Skittles that I like? Would they feel like, would they be all soggy like it happens in, in, the, in our land when they get wet? Or are they preserved? Maybe they're like extra just, you know, soft because the water is kind of warm around there and they don't hurt your teeth when you chew them. They're actually really, what am I doing? I'm considering something that I have no reason to consider. Next thing I do, I'm probably going to try to do is figure out if there's a way I can see it. Maybe we drive over into some shallow water or something. Let's, see, let's get a look at this. See if I, there is really the rainbow under. And now, now I'm gone, I've gone from considering it to entertaining it. And if I follow this progression, I, I am making myself susceptible to believing this Crazy foreign thought that has no basis in reality, has no basis in truth. But, but the serpent introduces the idea that there could be more than one God. That's true. The first time he suggested there might be three. And I'm, I'm not going to take the time to read through this, but I want to point out to you that the next time reading through Scripture, we see 
the idea of multiple gods. Now, we, to my knowledge, Adam and Eve didn't become idol worshipers. They didn't buy into that thought, oh, we are like gods. <laughs> they did start down that road. We know what happened. They fell into sin through deception. Okay? Now, some time later, there's a guy by the name of Jacob. He's the son of Isaac, who's the son of Abraham. Jacob leaves his father's land, goes into a strange land. Give you a little hint. Whenever you see the word strange in the Bible, take notice. Pay attention. Strange really means not of God. Okay? So Jacob finds himself in this strange land. The father-in-law that he starts to work for is named Laban. We know the story of Jacob. Uh, yeah, Jacob where he works for Laban and he gets deceived First marrying Leah and then Rachel. Through the process of all this and trying to remain faithful to Laban and realizing Laban doesn't care anything about Jacob. He's not ever going to actually help him out. He's just going to take advantage of him. God speaks to Jacob and says, okay, enough of this stuff. Time for you to go back to the land of your father, Isaac. Okay, so Jacob tells his Wives and his children were going back to the land of my father. We're not going to tell your dad. So they, they pack up the stuff, they leave, and Laban finds out, and he goes and pursues Jacob, tells him, why, why do you think you could get away with leaving? You're taking my... My children, you're taking my grandchildren, you're taking all this stuff that I care about. <laughs> and Jake, uh, Laban even says, if you're, if you're so caught up in worshiping your God and going to the land of your father, why did you take my gods with you? Now, Jacob didn't know that somebody with him took Laban's gods. It was Rachel. One of his wives. So this is the next time after Eve and hearing from the serpent that there is possibility of more than one God, multiple gods. You could become like a God. Fast forward all the way through these generations to Jacob. And we know somewhere in this point in time, that same deception took hold somewhere. With another individual. Because now they have gods. That they worship. This was not something that existed from the beginning. Understand. This is not something that it, we've just always had to deal with. There's no, okay, is there only one God? Or is there a true God? Or is there multiple gods? Or which one am I supposed to worship? This is, this is the terrible part about being a human being. We don't know who God is. This is not how it has always been. But somewhere along the way, this deception took hold. So Jacob finds out that Leah, that, that Rachel has brought Laban's idols with them. In Genesis chapter 35, I'll read you just this one verse to kind of put a, uh, an end to this story with Jacob. So Jacob gets back to uh, the land of his father where he was headed, starts to establish his family, set up these things. And for lack of a better word, the family becomes dysfunctional. Crazy, weird things happen with the family. But what happens is there's always this introduction of strange gods, new countries, new people, and their gods. 
Genesis 35 and 2. So this is where we're following. If we know that somewhere in history, men started to worship other gods, create other idols. But we know that Abraham has this special covenant and he's the grandfather of Jacob, this guy we're talking about. They are supposed to be God's chosen people. So Jacob tells his family here, then Jacob said unto the household and to all that were with him, put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. So regardless of the, the gods that Rachel, his wife, brought with them, and whatever gods they picked up along the way in those other chapters from then to here, Jacob decides, we're not going to have any more of this. All of my family, everybody under my authority, get rid of any strange god. Okay, this is, a, this is called a purge. Get rid of anything that is a god, that is an idol, or that represents the idea of this more than one God, worshiping the one true God. So they got clean. Well, if you follow through the story of Jacob and becoming Isaac, or sorry, Israel, Jacob becoming Israel and then having more children, sons, one of them by the name of Joseph, who finds his way into Egypt. All we're doing is walking through history here, okay? So with Jacob, he got things clean again. There were no other gods in his family, which became Israel, which became the children of Israel. But so we follow this lineage down through Joseph. Joseph and then his family find themselves in Egypt. This is how we get to this whole span of time where the Israelites are in bondage in Egypt. Okay, that's what we're talking about in the process of this time. So in Egypt, you think they worship other gods? Of course they do. This is another instance where God's people are faced with the idea that there's more than one God. Now, a little bit of insight. Just because they live in Egypt doesn't mean they have to start following Egypt's rules. Doesn't mean they have to start giving themselves into Egypt's way of thinking. Oh, we're surrounded by all these idol worshipers. There must be more than one God. I don't know why and where and how and when they made that leap. But it happened. Then we know the story of the children of Israel being led out of Egypt through Moses. Look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. When God decides enough's enough, I'm going to rescue my children, my people out of Egypt. And he's going to use Moses to do this. Exodus 12 and 12. Here's what he tells Moses at the end of this plague situation. I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. This is God telling Moses, judgment's not only for these people of Egypt and, and their children and taking their firstborn. I'm going to execute judgment against the gods of Egypt because things have gotten so out of hand, so out of line, so out of whack. The things that I'm going to do tonight will spill over to affecting the gods that they worship. I'm going to try to put an end to this for my people. Because, oh, 
Newsflash, tomorrow you're leaving. All those gods that they worshipped, I'm going to execute judgment against them tonight so that tomorrow when you leave, you get to leave with a clean slate, including the possibility of a thought that there could be more than one God. So you're leaving Egypt with the idea and the knowledge that I am the one true God. That purge continues. Exodus 18. We'll skip that one. Just so you know, in that passage, after the Exodus, Moses gets to the the children of Israel into the wilderness. Jethro, his father-in-law, comes along and says, Hey, I heard you were here. Remember your wife. Remember your children. We're going to join you. And Moses gets to tell Jethro about all that happened in those plagues and everything. And Jethro's response was, now I know that the Lord is God. And he is above all gods. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 2. Now this is the Lord still speaking to Moses in the wilderness. After he executed judgment on all the gods of Egypt. After he purged the thought and possibility from all of his people that there could be multiple gods. Again, this is what he tells him. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Verse 3, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I am the Lord. I did this. Now don't have any other gods before me. And for the last several months since Elder Hart mentioned this to me, when I think no other gods before me, It's pretty clear if you stop and think about it. That doesn't mean you're allowed to have gods after me. We're not talking about order of importance here. And as long as I am the God that's first, then all the other gods can be after me. That's not the case, okay? But we we need to draw that distinction. Even if the children of Israel did not. I mean, they, they, they know this is the commandment. I am the Lord your God. Thou shalt not have any other gods. He could end it right there because that's what he's saying. Verse 4. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Verse 5. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them. Now, I'm going to stop here and introduce a concept that the Lord has been showing me and dealing with me over and over repeatedly all throughout Scripture. For lack of a better term, what I call it or what I see it as is prophetic judgment. What I mean by that is God gives instruction And then he prophesies, if you don't follow this instruction, this is what's going to happen. He could stop by saying, don't make any graven images. Okay, good. Don't do it. But he knows his children well enough to know they might still do it. So don't make them and don't bow to them. What he's, what he's saying there is, if you make them, you will bow to them. If you give thought to them, if you give consideration to them, if you entertain the thought of another God, you're going to bow to it. Now just stick that in your pocket because we're going to come back to that. Thou shalt not bow thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. I'll mention this just briefly for the sake of time. I'm trying to hurry through this. 
If you jump forward into Acts, and those of you that were at the Bible study last night, I guess we need to hear this more than once. If you jump forward into Acts, first of all, Paul, traveling through Greece is where he finds himself in Athens, and he says it's a city completely given to idolatry. The city of Athens in Greece. Think about Greek mythology for just a second. Greek mythology is all about the gods, the Greek gods. So it's the same concept that the serpent presented Eve with in the garden. You could be like gods. Hang on, no time out, I can't because there's only one God. But this concept, somewhere along the way, again, it took root enough that he's not only giving people the idea that there could be more than one God, he's giving them names, descriptions, titles, what they look like. This, this is, I mean, it just baffles my mind to think that we can go from a, a, a realm where there is only one God, and only his creation, to a city that is completely given to idolatry. There is, when it says completely, it means there's no place for truth. No, no place for the one true God. So that's, that's Athens. That's Greek. Okay? Now, follow through that, and I... That's, I want to say it's Acts 16, where that's recorded. In Acts 19, there's another very interesting passage that has to do with gods of the day. Gods of their time. Gods of their cities. And again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it. But if you look in, in Acts 19, it's well on into the chapter. It starts by saying, there is a silversmith by the name of Demetrius. Everybody say Demetrius. Say it again. Say Demetrius. Demetrius. One more time. Demetrius. I'm making sure you're listening. Demetrius. Demetrius, the silversmith, calls together all the other workers of silver and gold and iron and anything. Plato. He says, we live in Ephesus. There is a temple in Ephesus. It's made to the goddess Diana. Or some passages call her Artemis, same, same goddess. Demetrius says, there's a guy by the name of Paul. He's going around and he's proclaiming that gods made with hands really aren't gods. Handmade idols really aren't gods. Now the problem with that is, not just that he's saying it, but that people are starting to believe it. And not only in Ephesus. I think it said that he was in Ephesus for the span of two years. So he's got a church. There's a strong church in Ephesus. That's enough of a problem. But then he says, this is starting to spread throughout all of Asia. And people that come from all of Asia to Ephesus buy our products. Buy the things that we make. They, they, they buy these little, they, they, yeah, they come to see the temple. But what they really also are going to do on their way out of town is stop at my shop and your shop and buy a little souvenir. Because what they've come to see and when they see this temple and believe the powers of this God, they want to take some of that home with them. And that's where we come in, gentlemen. If this guy, Paul, is going to convince them that she is not real and doesn't have any powers, they're not going to want to buy our stuff. The city, this city is about the worshiping that goddess who happens to just have residence in their town because that's where the temple was made. Now, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I don't have time to dwell on it tonight. But that discussion develops into a mob. That mob develops into a riot. 
And the city, the whole city of Ephesus is rioting around preserving the goddess Diana. Because this is who we are. Ephesus, Diana of Ephesus is, a, is what we're about. It's a pretty interesting. And the fact that it interjects half of the people, or it says several of the people that come into this mob, into this riot, they don't even know what Demetrius did at first, how this started. They just know there's a group of people over there rioting and mobbing, and they're saying, Diana's great. Woo, let's go join that. I can get on board with that. I like Diana. I like Artemis. And this is my city, too, and I'm proud of it. So they've got a riot centered around preserving a false god that gives them their identity. Look back at Exodus 34 real fast. When I mentioned this idea of prophetic judgment or God giving instruction and then very seriously saying, follow my instruction because if you don't, it's going to get worse. This is what he's saying again to Moses when he's given Moses, giving Moses more commandments, more instruction for the children of Israel. he's saying specifically, now I'm going to take you out of this wilderness. I'm going to put you in the promised land. When you get there, here's some instructions. Start reading in verse 12, Exodus 34, 12. Take heed to thyself. Everybody say, take heed to thyself. Everybody Check your phone. <laughs> Take heed to your phone. That's, he's saying, give consideration to yourself. Make sure. Lest. Lest. Really, we don't use that word a lot. But that's what God is saying. If you don't. Take heed to yourself if you don't. Thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land whither thou goest. And he's, he's starting the progression here. When you get there, there will be people that live there. I don't want you to enter a covenant with them. What do you mean? Like, what about just like a property agreement? I mean, we'll say we're going to live here. They're going to live there. No covenants. No agreements. No promises. With the inhabitants of that land. See, I want to get to the point where God can tell me anything. Without me having to question and get a list of reasons. Why? If he, if he wakes me up tomorrow morning and says, you're going to see a guy at work wearing a blue tie. Don't listen to anything that he says. I just want to say, okay, that's great. I'm going to do it. And not question it. Not have my scope out. Who's got a blue tie on today? Not, not any of that. I just want to be able to take that for what it is because it's truth from God. It's instruction. From God. So don't make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, whether thou goest, lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. The covenant is going to be the snare, not the 50 foot golden image. That's not the snare. You walk into the town, you see this huge idol. Oh no, this must not be the promised land because there's a huge idol. 
That's not the point that he's making. The covenant is going to be the problem, the snare. Verse 13, but ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. Verse 14, for thou shalt worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Verse 15. Lest. There's that word again. See, I'm not too far removed from being a teenager to know what it, what it feels like to just despise instruction. For no good reason. Other than I don't want somebody telling me what to do. As that's not hating on the teenagers. I love the teenagers. Young adults, it's coming for you. But it's our human nature to say, I'm not going to follow that because I can probably figure out a way around it. That applies to everybody else, but I'm smart enough to know that's going to be a snare for that person. That's going to be the, yeah, he can't, he can't even be in the midst of sinners without turning to the, not me though. Lest, everybody say lest. Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go a whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods. So, so, he already knows this is what's going on out there. This is what they're doing. They are worshiping other gods. They are giving themselves to idolatry. I don't want you to have a covenant with them because they're doing this. Not just because I don't trust you. Or, no, you, you need to prove yourself. No, it's not about that. God knows light and darkness don't mix. He knows that I'm light. He knows that they're darkness. And he tells me it's not going to mix. You have light in you. They are dark. I don't want you to go there. Here's what's going to happen. Do sacrifice unto their gods. This is not me yet. This is not the children of Israel. This is what they're doing. They're going a whoring after their gods. They're going to sacrifice unto their gods. And one, call thee. It's just going to be an invitation. They're, they're nice, friendly people. It's just going to be an invitation. One's going to call you. And thou eat of his sacrifice. Verse 16. And thou... Take of thy daughters unto thy sons. Oh, they're nice. They invited me to dinner. They serve good food. I've got a son that's single. They've got a daughter that's single. I mean, this, come on, this is just life, right? Pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, God, we want the truth of your spirit to prevail. We want the truth of your word to prevail in our lives. Jesus, cause it to shine truth into our hearts. Cause it to shine truth, Lord Jesus. God, I want to examine right now. I want you to examine me. Anything, God, that's not pure and of you. Any relationship, Lord Jesus, that's not founded upon you and your word and your truth. God, I want it to be subject to you, to your wisdom. I want it to be subject to your wisdom, Lord Jesus. Come on, somebody needs to be honest with the Lord right now. Come 
Come on, go ahead and stand up. We're going to entertain the presence of the Lord right now. Jesus, we reach out to you, Father. We know that in you is all truth. In you is every answer, God. In you is all peace. Jesus, we're longing for it right now. In the name of Jesus, we want the light of truth. Jesus, we want the light of truth right now. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we repent right now. God, we repent before you, Jesus, of anything that's not of your spirit that we've been allowing ourselves to entertain, to consider. In the name of Jesus, Elder Hart, I'm going to turn this over to you. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Come on, linger right here. Let the Spirit of the Lord continue to deal with our hearts. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we wait on you, Father. In the name of Jesus. Could, could we just be seated for just a moment? I don't know what the lamp of God has been shining on while you've been hearing and listening. And I hesitate to point out just one idol. So I'll just kind of talk around it. It's not so much now, but I think it was a year or two ago. You could not drive 100 yards in the Seattle area and not see a blue and green tent along the road filled with trinkets, shirts. You could not go into a place of business on a Friday and not count five or six numbered blue and green shirts. Do you know now there are people that own forty and $50,000 vehicles painted blue and green? I have seen homes that are blue with green garage doors. The whole Seattle area is given over to it. Just saying. I don't know what the lamp of God was shining on that came into your consciousness as Brother Flowers was teaching about this. Is it something to be aware of? Is it something just to excuse and cast reason? Or should we be conscious? Oh, the subtlety. Of that snake. Serpent. Oh, this. I I had never seen that that way until you were teaching that. That he literally introduced the Trinity 
when he said that Adam and Eve and God could be equal. We just baptized uh, a couple of people in Puyallup this last weekend. I wasn't there, but there were two people baptized that over the last year, God had been wooing them. They'd been come faithfully, but they came from a Trinity setting, and that was one of the, they, they were having difficulty with some of their family members because they were attending our church because we teach against a Trinity of God's. And then when you realize that Israel was distinctly set apart from all nations, all nations, because they did not have a multiplicity of gods. This is powerful teaching. It would behoove us all to take a closer look. Oh, my goodness, when you, when you use that word souvenir, <laughs> it seems to be the last trap on the way out of town. Take us with you. Take a part of our culture with you. Take our little figurines, I mean idols, I mean, and take them with you. We came across the border one time in Mexico, myself and my wife's aunt. It was a little business thing we were doing. And there were these neatest figurines made out of paper mache. I had to have them. Bought four of them. They were all different. Brought them home. My wife said, why? I don't know. They just looked so neat. They were painted with coffee and set them somewhere on the... Boy, they're... One day I went out and they were in the garbage. <laughs> we don't need those things in our house. Okay. Okay. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> oh, the subtlety. Praise God, brother. Praise God. Praise God. The... The challenge of a church service is that we can come in and hear the word. The word can reach into our spirit if our spirit is open. But then we can walk out in the busyness of life and dismiss the word and not examine ourselves in light of the word. And there is a need to examine our lives in light of the word. There are two things that just keep reverberating in my spirit. The first is the Apostle John closing out his letter. And you read all about the love of God. And he's writing all this about the love of God and these things and the, the oneness of God and the all of this about God, and he finishes with this statement, little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's like, it, it's like, what was that? Uh, sincerely yours at the end of it? It seems almost as though it didn't fit. He didn't lead up to it. He didn't preface the statement. He writes his whole epistle, and then he closes with that specific commandment. Not suggestion. Commandment. We would do well in light of the word to examine our homes. To examine our homes. To examine our hearts. To examine our closets, to examine every area of our life in relationship to anything we've given room to worship. 
Because anything we worship is an idol. Do you know where the greatest revival, what we call revival, the greatest outpouring of God's spirit, the greatest harvest of souls was in Paul's missionary ministry? Any ideas? Ephesus. Ephesus. Studied out in history. The greatest outpouring record number of drawing people converted to the faith was Ephesus. By far, the greatest revival or harvest in Paul's missionary ministry, and he affected many, many areas, the greatest, bar none, was Ephesus. What happened? The Spirit of the Lord confronted the idols of the city. And when that was dealt with, people could turn to the one true God. And there was great harvest. If we expect the world to turn away, we as the church must first examine ourselves and turn away and put away. I don't mean put away for later use. I mean put away. When the children of God in the book of Acts received truth, they took books that were of curious arts and burnt them. They didn't go sell them on eBay so they could make a little cash and put them in somebody else's hand. They burnt them. I feel such a provoking of the Spirit of God that says you need to purge some things and don't try to turn them into cash, burn them, destroy them. Don't pass them off to somebody else. The Lord is wanting to pour out His Spirit. He's wanting to turn hearts to Him. But He's asking us first, put away from yourself these things. Purge your home of these things. Get these things cleared from your life. Turn back to the one true God. Guess what? I can't do this for anybody else. And nobody else can do this for me. Why don't we stand together again? Come on, let's talk to the Lord right now again before we leave. God, let your word be marked in my spirit. Let your word be marked in my spirit. I pray things you've illuminated to me even this evening, Father. Let there be an active work done. Father, in obedience on our part to the word of the Lord. And in the days ahead, continue to illuminate and lead us. We desire to walk in and according to your word and your spirit, Father. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. That you, the one true living God, would be glorified. That you, the one true living God, would be magnified in, with, and through your body. That men would be drawn to you, Father. In the name of Jesus, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Let it be so in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Before you leave tonight, I know many of you have been reading the book of Genesis and the book of Acts, yes? And um, it wasn't some planned effort on our part, but I firmly believe it was ordained of the Spirit of God and the Holy Ghost has been teaching us from those books. Amen? Um, I think you know we don't try to stick to some theme, but the Holy Ghost, if He gets us in a vein, we're going to stay there. And that has been evident. And so uh, I, I thank you for joining together. The Lord is trying to establish some things and principles in our hearts and lives through the thread of the Scripture. Amen. We are getting ready to turn the corner on a month, I was reminded. And uh, please don't think that that means the next month they're always going to teach out of whatever book we're reading. That's not necessarily the case, but that's what the Lord established here at the outset of this year. Uh, I'm asking you again, you may think this strange, but I'm asking you in February to read the book of Acts again. All right? I want us to read it again. The Lord is wanting us to see ourselves in that book. 
He's wanting us to see who we are as the church and walk and live according to his word. He wants to manifest himself through us the way we read in that book. So I'm asking us to read the book of Acts again and um, then to simply continue forward and read the book of Exodus. All right. That'll be a couple chapters a day in Exodus and you'll finish early. Um, Because there's only 40 chapters in Exodus and there's 28 in Acts and there's 28 days in February. So. If you, fall, if you fell behind in Acts in January, you had three bonus days. You don't have that in February. Amen? Let's read the word of the Lord together. Let's pray over the word of the Lord together. Let's let it get in our spirit together. Amen? Praise God. One other request. Next week, Monday the 4th, 5th, and 6th. Are those days right? Sounds about right, doesn't it? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday next week. I think it's the 4th, 5th, and 6th, but I'm not sure. Would you please, as a body, could we set aside one, two, or all three of those days and agree to a day or two or three of prayer and fasting and waiting on the Lord, pushing away from the table, cutting off social media, all those other things, and setting time apart with Him? Amen? Next Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Praise God. God bless you. Greet someone. You're dismissed in the precious name of the Lord. Men who have been... Asking me or bugging me about men's conference, you can come talk to me now. I'll give you information on that. I've got it here. So come now. Amen.